welcome to Ghoulish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. I'm Kim. And we like to talk about all things spooky, haunted, true crime, you know, those stories that you hear about but you're not really sure if they're true. We like to, you know, find the rabbit hole. That's your favorite thing, Kim. It is. I do like a good rabbit hole. That's what she said? No. Sure. Oh, shoot. Um, and we really love a good dad joke, too. So, you know. Well, some some of us more than others. <laughs> that's true. I have full admittance. I will love a dad joke. So if you ever want to share a dad joke, we like to hear them, too. So anywho, uh, this is Kim's episode today. And we're, I'm actually, I'm just going to say I'm super stoked because I know a little bit about this topic, not a ton about the topic, and I know she brought some good stuff for us today. So, uh, Kim, what's our topic? Uh, we're going to be talking about Amityville. Yes. And before we get into Amityville, we wanted to start off this episode with a ghost story or slash occurrence from one of our listeners. And this is from Kathy. So thank you so much, Kathy, for sharing. She said that her first ghost story went on for some time while she was nine years old. Her bedroom was next to the pool, and she would constantly hear water splashes and her dogs barking. Her parents disregarded this as her imagination. She would hear someone walking around and even feel someone sitting on her chest. Like, oh my goodness. That does not sound normal. She would be awakened to shrieks and lights turned on throughout the night. It wasn't until a pool party that everyone witnessed something propel out of the pool at a fast rate that was inexplicable. And that was when her parents shared that a little boy had drowned in her pool years prior. Oh, that's a creepy story. I don't want to have someone sitting on my chest. <laughs> no, not so much. Not so much. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for sharing. And let's get on with the show. Kim, Amityville, talk to me. Uh, well, so... And this is a really interesting topic for multiple reasons. Um, when when you say Amityville, usually what pops in people's heads? Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> oh yeah, he did. Ooh, I, Ryan Reynolds. Well, he pops in my head no matter what. I'm actually Ooh, he just he's in my head right now. <laughs> hey Ryan, what's up? Hey, boy. Uh, in in in. Oh God, that Sandra Bullock movie when he's chopping wood with no shirt. Yep. Ooger. <laughs> That is, there is not a damn thing wrong with that. But yes, he did star in the remake of the Amityville Horror, which was the story of the Lutz family. And the Lutz family, they moved in, uh, it's actually 112 Ocean Avenue. It's not a good thing when everybody knows your address. That's bad. No, that's really bad. It's really bad. Don't go there, listeners. Oh, should I have not gone there when I was younger? <laughs> Too late. I went, listen, I went to college on Long Island, which is where, where this is. And of course, she drove by the Amityville house. It's just what you did. Yeah. Uh, but in December of 1975, the Lutz family moved into 112 Ocean Avenue. And 28 days later, they moved out. Like, in a rush. Like, bye. <laughs> like, bye. Uh, they claim they're being terrorized by ghosts and demons. Uh, there's, if you have not already picked up on this there is one or two movies that have been made about this ryan uh, ryan, ryan, yes they, they're all actually just about ryan reynolds it's uh, his autobiography that he wrote and yeah, now we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, there's like but there's like 10 movies in the official franchise and 
there, I found this one article that said there were 22 films. That's so many. Are you serious? I, yeah, that are, that are tied to the house. Not all officially in the like Amityville horror franchise, but 22 films that utilize the Amityville house. But the house wasn't just haunted, right? It had a history. It had a history. Well, and, and, and so here's the thing. The, the haunted history, the Lutz family story, we're actually going to be talking about on our next episode. Oh, you want to tease me. I, I see do. you. I like to dangle things in front of Gabby. Shiny, shiny, pretty things. Like Ryan Reynolds. Like Ryan Reynolds. Oh, <laughs> He's just so pretty. So... <laughs> You know we're going to have to post a picture of Ryan Reynolds from Amityville Horror in our Instagram when we talk um, about Not this. only, and to our Twitter, and we should tag him because oh, he has the he kind of sensibility, it. he might love it. So everybody knows the Amityville Horror story, or at least has heard of it. But what a lot of people don't know is that the story did not start in 1975 with the Lutz family. It actually started one year prior. November of 1974. Ooh, flashback, flashback, flashback. So uh, Amityville is this little village on Long Island, New York. It's, it's legitimately like 2.5 square miles. It is, it is tiny, tiny, tiny. And they really lean into the fact that Amity means friendship. Friendship with ghosts? Friendship with ghosts. Well, maybe. It's also, listen, it's Long Island. In general, a lot of Long Island means you've got some money. Not all of it, but a lot of the portions of Long Island, are there's some money. Um, Amityville is a town where the people who live there have money. Must be nice. Must be nice. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm an artist. I don't know what any of that means. Some of the former and current residents include a lot of athletes and musicians, and apparently Alec Baldwin? Wait, what? Really? Yeah, yeah. he was a okay. resident, or I, I think was. So uh, the DeFeo family, they moved in to this beautiful home at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. And they came from Brooklyn. Represent. Uh, <laughs> what? Brooklyn? Sorry, that was funny. <laughs> Him so, getting real Brooklyn was real good. Real Alex, I'm a former New Yorker, man. Like, I know, I know, I know. So, well, and here's the thing. So New Yorkers are loud, right? They're loud. That's why we have two different mics, Kim. It's why we have two different mics. I'm loud. <laughs> yeah, I'm loud. It's fine. <laughs> but, but so when the DeFeo family moved in, everything I read was talking about how they stood out. Like they stood out as being loud and obnoxious and they brought drama. And I'm like, y'all, I went to college on Long Island. My first roommate was a girl who was pure Long Island. They are not subtle. So if someone from Long Island is saying you're loud. That means something. That means something. Okay, fair. So the, the DeFeo family, they moved there. And they DeFeo family, loud though they may be, had a lot of money. We had uh, Ron DeFeo Sr., the head of the family, his wife, Louise. Ron Jr., because of course, if you are from New York, you have to name your firstborn son after your father. Uh, he was nicknamed Butch as a child. That's an interesting name. Well, it's, I mean, it's the 70s. That's actually not that uncommon a nickname. But he was, he was short and kind of chubby when he was a little boy. Okay, accurate. Uh, and the nickname stuck as he, as he became an adult. And I will be referring to him as Butch to kind of avoid confusion with uh, Ron Sr. 
Okay. We had uh, 18-year-old Don, 13-year-old Allison, 11-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John. Had a nice little family. Ron worked at the uh, family-owned car dealership, still in Brooklyn. It was owned by his father-in-law. He worked for his father-in-law. And 23-year-old Butch worked there and had worked there for years. It was a really cushy job. I kind of used the word work. Quote-unquote, air quotes. Air quotes. Um, He did not work hard and did not work a lot. He was a problem kid. He kind of turned into a problem adult. He was bullied when he was younger. And then as he got a little older, he became the bully. Oh, sad. Yeah. And I mean, that does happen. But like, I read an account of him beating up his sister at one point. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good, bro. So they sent him to a psychiatrist, which I don't think it stuck. At least they tried. At least they tried. Uh, He drank, which, listen, I don't judge anyone for that. Kim Uh, just cheers me with her um, whiskey in a cup. What does that cup say? It sure says cyanide. Yeah, it is. drinking her cyanide for the evening, and this is going to be a really fun episode because of it. Yay. Because I'm still drinking it. (laughs) Still currently consuming. Uh, If you are part of our Patreon and would like to support us by sending Kim whiskey, I will provide you with the address to send said whiskey to. (laughs) Anyway... Uh, no, so so Butch Butch liked to drink, and he got violent when he drank. Um, he would throw bar stools, break pool cues. There was one report that he got in a fight, and the other person had a knife, and he re- he he got a, a superficial stab wound. Wait, hold on, superficial, like bow stab? He's like he was lightly stabbed. Oh, just just a just a light shake. It's a wee little stab. Light shanking. Light shanking. Lightly shanked. <laughs> it sounds like how you'd ask for a drink to be prepared. I'd like it lightly shanked, please. Just lightly. Shaken, not shanked. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Your dad jokes are picking up on me. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. Keep going. Okay, so uh, there was, okay, this, re- this was actually really alarming. Uh, I read this report that he had been hunting with a friend. And he just flat out pointed his firearm at his friend. What? To be funny, I guess. That's not funny. It's not funny. But his parents, you know, their method of dealing with it was to to indulge him. He had horrible moods and behaviors. And I think they thought by like, all right, we'll give you a job where you don't really have to work. We'll give you cars. We'll give you an allowance. We'll give you guns, whatever you want. Just please behave better. He didn't. Obviously. That's a terrible solution. Yeah, it's a shock that it didn't work. This is my shocked face that I'm wearing right now for everybody at home. He dropped out of high school, had a heroin problem. Ah. It was the 70s, though. Everybody did. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's not fine, but still. It wasn't uncommon. What I think was maybe the most alarming thing, though, is I read this report that he had had a fight uh, with his with his father specifically, his his mom and dad were fighting, and Ronnie Butch to try and break it up grabbed one of the rifles, loaded a cartridge in it. What? Pointed it at his father. That is ballsy. Oh wait! And then he said, "Leave that woman alone. 
I'm going to kill you, you fat fuck. This is it. Wow. Are you serious? He said he called his dad a fat fuck. He called his dad a fat fuck. And then he pulled the trigger. Wait, he didn't kill his dad like that. So the gun, and I don't know how this happened. The gun didn't discharge. It might be because he only put one cartridge in the rifle. Could you imagine though? No. But also, these are, are huge blinking warning signs. Flashing red lights, for sure. Flashing red lights. I mean, like a fireworks show of warning. And nobody's doing really anything. So a little bit before the murders took place, Butch and his friend faked a robbery for, for money from the business. Because again, he worked at his, at his family's car dealership. They filed a police report and the police were kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I believe this was a real robbery because they're police. They, they're set up to figure these things out. Right. And so they call in his dad. They're like, yo, Mr. DeFeo, come on down here. Talk to your son. And his dad flat out said to him, like, did you have anything to do with this? And Butch got so angry that he was questioned about this, he threatened again to kill his father. Wait, did he threaten his dad in front of the police? You know, I didn't see specifically if the police were there, if this was something that he asked. uh, But he was in front of somebody because this was something that wasn't just reported in one source. I found this in multiple sources that referenced this specific incident. That's crazy. But it's also, I mean, it's kind of their relationship. Hashtag foreshadowing. Hashtag foreshadowing. (laughs) But you know what's funny? So like, I I have a a very dear friend of mine who I'm really hopeful is not listening to this podcast right now because she's going to recognize herself fairly quickly. And uh, her family is lovely, but they are, they're New Yorkers. They're East Coasters. They're like New York, New Jersey, Italian. And you're describing my family on my dad's side. (laughs) The way that they interact with each other I do not understand. Like I lived, I lived back east for a decade. I consider myself in some form a little bit of a New Yorker, but I was born in the Pacific Northwest. And we are passive aggressive to oh, the yes. degree. It's how we function, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's our love language is passive aggressive. <laughs> passive aggressive. What is the passive aggression? Passive aggression. There you go. I like my made up word better. Uh, <laughs> but like this is like. When I watch her and her mom go at it, I mean, they're just screaming at each other like, why are you being such a stupid bitch? I don't know. Why are you being a stupid bitch? Fuck you. Fuck you. I love you. I mean, healthy relationships, right? But it's, I will say there are people who communicate like this all the time. So maybe this is just their love language. I I guess context is important, right? Context is important. Got it. But so it it wasn't just verbal that there was some issues. Um, And, and. I don't know if this is giving Butch credit or not, but uh, Ron DeFeo Sr., he had a reputation for being violent as well. He was said to be very abusive, not just to Butch, but to his whole family. Oh, man. And so you do have to look at certain behaviors and wonder, is some of this learned? Is some of this, you know, would this have happened if you didn't beat up on your family? It can't help. And when you say this, <laughs> well, <laughs> glad you said that. <laughs> On November 11th of 1974, in the late afternoon, Butch is sitting in Henry's bar. Uh, Henry's was located a few short blocks from his home. 
Butch was a regular here. Everybody knew him. It was Cheers. Everybody knew his name. He had been to work earlier that day. He'd gone shopping with his girlfriend. Shot up some heroin. No big deal. Um, yeah, no big deal. No, it was a normal afternoon. While he was at the bar, he had four to five vodka seven ups. I'm judging him right now for his drink choice. <laughs> of course, just you are. a wee bit. Listen, <laughs> nothing against if you enjoy a good vodka seven up. Power to you. Why anyone enjoys seven up, I don't fully understand. But power to you. But come on, man, vodka seven up. What is it? The seventy? Oh wait. Yes, actually, seventies. It right, literally fair. was the seventies. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> so he's complaining to kind of the whole bar, like, oh man, I forgot my keys. I'm going to have to break a window when I get home. I like that we go from I forgot my keys to I need to break a window to get in. But he said he'd been calling home all day and no one was picking up, which is a little strange. Like he's loudly talking about no one's home. I've been trying to call. No one's picking up. What could be going on? With huge arms. With huge arms. Yeah, everybody can't see my huge arms right now, but they're epic. So he goes home. (laughs) And it takes him, you know, home is really is only a few blocks away. So he comes bursting back into the bar minutes later, screaming for help. Someone has murdered his parents. Well, that is a thing that will send the place into high alert. Yeah, that's actually a very big deal. Yeah, no, that's not just, nobody goes back to what they were doing. a bunch of guys get together. They go to the house. When they get there, front door is now unlocked because Butch had apparently broken the window. And the first thing they notice when they get in the house is the sound of an alarm clock just going off. And it was Dawn's alarm clock, the oldest daughter. It had been set for 7.15 a.m. that morning and was still going off. And what time is it? At this point? Uh, it is now about 6.30 p.m. Okay. That's weird. Their dog, the family dog, Shaggy, was in the kitchen barking loudly. Did Shaggy say it wasn't me? (laughs) (laughs) You just broke me. Okay. (laughs) You can see the little puppy just like wrapping it out. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. The parents on the floor. Oh, God. (laughs) And to... Point, case in point, they weren't on the floor; they were on the bed. So, okay, to right. man, you know details. Get it right, girl. If you're gonna if you're gonna parody it, get it right. <laughs> so, um, at this point in time, Butch is like, "Nope, I'm not going in anymore. I know what lies upstairs." So his friend Bobby goes upstairs, and the master bedroom is on the second floor. Door is wide open, lights are on, and there, in the bed, were the bodies of Ron Senior and Louise. They were on their stomachs. Both of them had been shot in the back. Ron Sr. was hit twice in the lower back. One bullet pierced his kidney, exited his chest. Yeah. And the other entered the base of his spine and lodged itself in the neck. So the medical examiner would speculate later he could have been alive for as little as a few seconds to as many as a couple minutes. Oh, no, that sucks. Yeah. Louise had also been shot twice. One bullet had exited her chest and shattered her rib cage, which destroyed most of her right lung. And they said it was possible she could have lived up to 10 minutes after she was shot as well. Oh, my God, 10 minutes? 10 minutes. 
her body was lying in such a manner that kind of suggested that she woke up and had started to turn her body towards the killer when she was shot. So she knew something was up. Or she heard the, like, if her husband was killed first, you would hear, you know, right, boom, the gunshots. Boom, the yeah. gunshots, probably. So at this point, they call 911. It was about 635 when the 911 call was received. And by 640, officer, this is our name of the day, Kenneth Graguski. Yes, Graguski. I like that name. Uh, he arrived from the Amityville police station. He went up to the bedroom first, saw where Ron Sr. and Luis were verified they were deceased. The next stop he made was the younger boy's bedroom. John and Mark, they shared a bedroom. And he found them both lying face down on their twin beds, on their stomachs, shot in the back at close range. Oh, no. Yeah. The killer was less than two feet from them. And they were killed, I mean, like one after another. The the way the casings had fallen, it was obvious the killer hadn't moved. He just shot and then shot. So at this point, Graguski's like, okay, gonna need some backup. Went back downstairs to call headquarters, and he said there were four bodies. And Butch is at the kitchen table, and he's crying, and he hears them, and he says, but I have two sisters. Back up the stairs, Graguski went. So he finds the third bedroom, and there's Allison. And like the others, she was face down and shot, but she also seemed to have woken up when the killer had come in because the positioning of her body showed she was turning. And so the bullet entered her head through her right ear. It lacerated her brain. Yeah. The last bedroom was Dawn. And this was up on uh, the attic level. She was face down, a blanket almost completely covering her. She'd been shot in the back of the neck, the bullet entering through her left ear and exiting her left temple. And this next part's a little graphic, not that, you know, this has been puppies and sunshine before this, but uh, (laughs) the left side of her face had collapsed from the shot. And there was brain matter mixed with the blood. Powder burns were found on her eyes. And what that suggests is that she was awake and was looking at the killer. Oh, God. you, You think about those last moments. I mean, how terrifying must it be to wake up and turn and what you're seeing is a the barrel of a gun. That's literally like a horror movie. No, it, it is. And it's it's sad too, because you have to think that her last moments then were spent in fear. Those last couple moments she had to just be terrified. And that's really sad. Definitely. So Graguski went downstairs, told headquarters that they were dealing with six bodies, not four. And at this point, Butch became incoherent because he had just learned his whole family was dead. There were eight shots in total. Uh, Ron Sr. and Louise were each shot twice. Everyone else then was shot once. And they were shot with a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. But there was no gun found at the scene. So they take Butch to the police station to uh, give his statement. It's about 7 p.m. at this point. And they ask him, just like, tell me about your day. And he he recounts his day. He got up early for work. It was about 4 a.m. when he got up for yes, work. That's very early. I know. He was he was having some trouble sleeping. Sun wasn't up yet. 
takes a shower, trims his beard. It's the 70s. Yeah, that's what you do. You have a beard. And then he left for Brooklyn at about 4.40 a.m. Arrived at work about 6 a.m. He mentions that he'd called the house throughout the day and no one picked up. So they say to him, like, all right, Butch, do you have any idea who might have done this? And he just blurts out a name, Fellini. Who's Fellini? That's a good question. So what starts to tumble out is, is Butch is revealing a family history of being involved with the mafia. Oh, no. Yeah. So the car dealership, right? The whole family, the, the father, the son, they work for the car dealership, right? Is that like car dealership in air quotes? It's apparently, because according to Butch, it's a front for the mob. They would do money laundering, weapon disposal, and body disposal. Excuse me? Well, you know, they... I'm not sure, like, how is a car dealership a front for getting rid of bodies? You put them in the trunks and drive them away? It's every car you buy, you get a free body? I don't know. <laughs> it's like a, a little free gift. Buy one, get one body. <laughs> So Fellini, Louis Fellini, whom Butch named, was a known mafia hitman. Fellini had been friends with his father, apparently had even stayed with the family for a while, but there was some kind of falling out. And Butch used that falling out as, uh, I mean, basically a, an excuse as to why the mob retaliated against him and killed his family. And like he's talking, but he's he's kind of being a rock star. He's giving them info left and right. He's being forthcoming that he has drug issues. He had shot up earlier that day, admitted to owning three rifles, but he said his father had forced him to get rid of them. He also said, "Well, I'd had a handgun, but I was forced to get rid of that by my father as well." So, but he's cooperating. Hmm. So there's really no reason to think that, that this guy is involved when he's just like, listen, full disclosure. I shot some heroin up earlier. That's not really something you would naturally just admit to the police, right? right. But he, he seems to want them to really understand, like, I, I just want you to have all the facts so you can catch the horrible person that did this. Deflection. Def <laughs> Deflection. So now he's, you know, the police are concerned his life could still be in danger. So they're like, all right, you got to stay here. We're going to keep looking for Fellini. But what they found was actually something a little more interesting. And what they found would change the shape of the investigation. What did they find? Well, in Butch's room, they found two boxes. One for a twenty-two caliber rifle and one for a thirty-five Marlin rifle. The exact one that was used. The exact one that was used. But, but wait, hold on. Was there a box or was there a gun in it? Just a box. Huh. Yeah. So where'd the gun go? That is the question. Discovery number two, though, Fellini had an alibi. He wasn't even in town. Okay, so he definitely didn't do it. Definitely did not do it. So now they're turning their attention to Butch. He's become their number one suspect. They got to change tactics. So they're going to try to push him to admit what happened. So they, they go to him and they show him the boxes for the guns. They're like, dude, dude, look what we found in your room. And he admitted that he owned the, the, the 22, but he was like, mm, I don't really recognize that 35. That's a stupid thing to say. I know, right? At this point, too, you're like, come on, man, really? Like, could, so, didn't he, wait, hold on. Didn't he say that he was like, 
he had given away all of his guns. So couldn't yeah. those have been the boxes of the guns that he had given a- away? That to me be completely logical. Because it's, I mean, I think all the time I'll take something out of the box and I'll keep the box for whatever reason. But I don't store things in the box. So, all right, yeah, that was that was one of my guns, but I had to get rid of it. And plus you can't like, I know they didn't have any kind of like DNA at the time yet, but mm-hmm. like they, they couldn't like say that that was him that, that did it because he had a box of something. No, a box having... really doesn't prove anything. Right. So he could have very easily have deflected that. Very much so. Hmm. Interesting. So they start questioning him a little bit more aggressively. And I think at this point they're kind of trying to trip him up. So they ask him about the night before. Like, can you tell us what, what was going on the night before? Were you with your family? Did you eat with them? And his response, and my God, this is just like, if you want to get a clear idea of who Butch DeFeo is, this was his response. My mother was a lousy cook. She cooked up some brown stuff in a bowl. It looked like shit. What? And smelled like shit. Rude. Yeah. If you guys had to eat it, it would taste like shit. Oh my God. Right? What an ungrateful child. Uh, what I thought was what a little prick, but that works too. Uh, tomato, tomato. Tomato, tomato. So he, but he's like ripping into his family. And I, like, I wish everybody could read the full account of his questioning. And it went on for like seven hours. So I don't blame you if you don't. But it is fascinating. I, I will say a great source of information and where I got a lot of my information about specifically his questioning was from the book by Gerard Sullivan and Harvey Aronson called High Hopes, The Amityville Murders. It's extremely detailed and informative. So if you want to dive deep into this case, it is an excellent, excellent resource. So he keeps talking about the night before. He mentions his sister Dawn and that she had just taken a shower. So they're like, well, how did you know she was taking a shower? Did you see her in the shower? And he responded, no, I seen that fucking thing on her fucking head. I believe a towel is what we call it in polite circles, a towel. Or not even polite circles, maybe educated. <laughs> or educated, or any circle. You don't have to be educated on what a towel is, but I guess towel is harder to say than fucking thing. Uh, It's more descriptive to be like fucking thing. (laughs) So aggressive. So aggressive. The detective says like, Butch, how can you say that about your sister who has expired in the last 24 hours? I find it almost incredible. Yeah, red flag. Red flag. His response, that's the way I speak. (gasps) Oh, no, Butch. Charming. So the police start questioning him about when the killings could have happened and they're kind of wearing him down i mean they basically get him to admit that the killings had to have happened while he was still home asleep she says in air quotes so the detective says to him like butch i think you're embarrassed i think you were probably there you probably heard something you probably feel you should have done something to protect your family but you were too frightened You had a very good reason. So what could you have possibly done? And he responds, oh, I was scared. I was really scared. I did hear something. I heard two shots. Oh, but you're an idiot. 
oh, it gets better. So now they, they have him admitting like, okay, cool. You admit you were, you admit you were there. First of all, we know you were there when this happened. So then it can put a time on it too. Yeah. And Hmm. they keep pushing him and they're pushing him and pushing him. And he just starts saying, you won't believe it. You won't believe it. So like, no, Butch, we'll, we'll believe you. We want to hear what you have to say. So he admits to hearing his family, hearing, hearing his family get killed and that he was being framed. So where was he when he was hearing his family being killed? Well, and, and this is what's kind of fascinating because at this point he says that he's being framed and that somebody else did it. That Fellini, ah, we're back to our friend Fellini. Who already has an alibi. Who had an alibi, but Butch doesn't know this. Oh, true. And at this point, I, I, to be fair, they may not have gotten actually in contact with Fellini at this point. Like the Fellini alibi is something that came out throughout the investigation, but gotcha. he's sticking by his Fellini. Like, nope, Fellini, Fellini, Fellini. I'm being framed. They came in. They forced me to listen to this. It wasn't me that did it. But he heard his family get killed. And so he goes into his parents' room and he, in his socks too. He was very specific. I was in my socks. I went to my parents' room in my socks. And he stepped on the gun, his gun. He admits to it being his gun. And he says, well, I knew I'd been framed. I knew I had to get rid of everything. I had to get rid of the evidence. Evidence, evidence, evidence. So he's still, I mean, he's, he's standing by, this was a mob hit. But now he's saying, oh, well, it was a mob hit, but they were trying, they're trying to frame me. They're trying to ruin my life. So he decides he has to dispose of the evidence. So he grabs everything. He grabs the guns, starts grabbing all of the cartridges out of all of the bedrooms. And this was something I found really interesting. When he went into his brother's room, he found the cartridges in the middle of the room, in the middle of the carpet. And he says to the cops, they got it like this. And he actually mimed the firing of the shotgun. Like he saw it happen. Or just telling them like, this is how my brothers got it. They got it like this. Boom, boom. To phrase it, got it, is a very interesting way to phrase it. That's what I think. And it's, it's a very detached way when you're talking about your, your younger brothers. Your like, these family, are, like These children. are little boys. These are children. <sighs> And you're talking about how they got it. It's, I, it's a lot, honestly. Reading his stuff is a lot. So he's got everything gathered, stuffs everything in a pillowcase, puts his clothes in the pillowcase because they got blood on them when he was gathering everything. And he, he went to the bay and threw in one of the rifles. And then he drives to Brooklyn dumped the pillowcase down the sewer. And again, he's sticking to the story. Fellini did it. Louis Fellini did it. Then why would you feel like you need to get rid of the gun if somebody else did it? Well, because he says that Fellini woke him up and made him watch, which again, we know Fellini couldn't have done this. And, and this, is, this is a specific passage from High Hopes because I, I, I want to get all of these quotes correct. So the detective asks him, did anybody wake up? 
and this is kind of heartbreaking. He says, yeah, Dawn did. Dawn opened her door as they were coming up the stairs and asked if anything was wrong. Ronnie said no, and she closed the door. When they got up the stairs, Fellini opened it. Fellini opened the door and shot her right in the head, and her head was like blown away. That, Fellini loved it. He loved it. Yeah, that, Fellini loved it. You should have seen him. He was like a mad dog. The gun was smoking and the barrel was hot. Oh my God, that's so detailed. And the detective describes, Ronnie's eyes were lit up as he talked. And what they thought Ronnie was saying, I loved it. Because also, how did Ronnie know the barrel was hot? So Ronnie is just unraveling at this point. And finally, one of the detectives says, rather gently, Butch, I think they must have made you shoot some of them. And Butch says, they did? What? They made me shoot my father and Mark. Oh my God, he admitted it. He admits it. And I I give the detectives credit in how they come off on this because they come off as kind of just gently leading him to his own demise. Mm -hmm. He breaks down. Finally. And what he then says, and this is important, it all started so fast once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast fast and that is what we like to call confession Confession that is a full-on confession but here's the thing he refuses to write the confession down or sign anything wait did they record it it's it was recorded in some fashion because all of these quotes exist all of this this whole account of and it was like seven hours worth of interrogation. So I, they either tape recorded it or it was being recorded. I suspect tape recorded. It was the seventies. It wasn't stone age. <laughs> I mean, you beg to differ with those uh, alcoholic beverage choices. Listen, just because it was the seventies doesn't mean you can't have good taste. Touche, ma'am. Touche. But like they got this confession. He won't sign it. He won't write it down. He doesn't want his grandfather to see, but they got a confession. So the the police, they're still trying to find the weapons because they don't have weapons. But they they go to where Ronnie had said he dumps the pillowcase with the shells and the rifles. And they do find it. They find the pillowcase. They find the shells. No rifle, though. Interesting. Yeah. So they they sort of push him again. And they're like, "Mm, is it possible you put the rifle somewhere else? And he says he threw it in the canal behind the empty house next door. So police start searching. Divers find it on Friday, November 15th, so the very next day. And later that same day, Butch DeFeo is arraigned. They're building this case. And what I found really interesting, like, Butch went through a lot of lawyers. Really? Yeah. They did not get along. Uh, it, It took him a while, and he finally settles on an attorney. And the attorney is trying to get the confession thrown out as admissible evidence. And he says that, that Butch was beaten by the cops. The, the, the judge doesn't allow the confession to be dismissed, but he does allow them to use that as part of their defense. 
Well, that he was beat up by the cops. You can argue that, that like police coercion or whatever. So I will, I will throw out there that at this point in time, the Suffolk police did have a little bit of a reputation. Uh Uh-oh. Something like 90% of their cases got confessions. That's interesting, isn't it? That's unheard of. Like, 50% is a lot. 90% is a suspicious pattern. That kind of feels like they're almost like accusing people that are innocent and getting innocent people to say that they are guilty, right? Well, they had a reputation of bullying suspects. Okay. And I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm putting that out there as uh, to try to give you as, as much balanced information as possible. And I will, I will also say the book, High Hopes, which I got a lot of information from, it is a very detailed account, something I didn't realize when I started reading it. The author, Harvey Aronson, uh, he's a journalist. Gerard Sullivan was the prosecuting attorney on the case. Well, that's interesting. That is interesting. So like when, when he was talking about the accusation of brutality, he's recounting it being like, it was such BS. There wasn't a mark on him. I did read other accounts that talked about some bruising. One even mentioned a split lip. I don't know which is true. I was not there. I have not seen pictures. It is, though, I think a really good example of how stories are very much shaped and history is very much shaped by who is telling the story. Context. Context. And it's something I think we all need to keep in mind when we are looking at at cases, that we're being fed a narrative that is being shaped. I even read one account of one of the police officers, one of the detectives who was involved in the case, and he later said this in an interview. Sure, of course we did a good job on him. What do you expect? Well, that's cocky. It's a lot of things. So I'm going to just leave that there. I don't want to say one way or another because I don't know, but I do find it interesting that, that we have some differing accounts. So Butch would also accuse the cops of planting evidence. His lawyer ultimately pled insanity. Yeah, it's a leap and a jump, I know. And they had a a forensic psychiatrist who testified and said Butch was insane, didn't realize he killed his family until after the fact. Although, I mean, I will say for a guy who apparently didn't realize he killed his family, the details of him killing his family are quite extraordinary. And the fact that he mentioned that he kept trying to get a hold of his family all day. Uh, Yeah, where are my family? Why aren't they answering the phones? My, how odd. This is strange. They, I, bet he, I bet he said it in that voice, too. In that tone. Perfectly. That tone. This is strange. So educated. Mm. So, so his, <laughs> his, his story was also like just changing constantly to the point where it's almost hard to keep track of them all. He would, he would confess to, full t- to multiple different motives. Um, and there's different versions, different people. It was money. It was self-defense. His sister did it, and so he killed her. His mother did it. So he killed her. My favorite one, um, he only killed his father, but then he had to kill everyone else. Wait, what? (laughs) Like, he killed his father because fuck his father, but then I killed my father, so I had to kill everybody else. You know, that's logical. Um, There was one account that he was stealing 
money. His father was known to have like a stash of money that he kept around. So he's like, oh, I was taking the money and then my dad caught me. So I had to kill my dad. And then because I killed my dad, I had to kill everybody else. That's logic. Hmm. Right? That's super logical. But I mean, like it, it went on. It went on. And his story just changed so often. At one point, he did confess that the voices from the house made him do it. I'm sorry, what? The voices from the house. Not the voices from his head, right? Well, I mean, that could be the same thing. But this does become important next week when we talk about the Lutzes. So. Spoiler. Okay, so then you think potentially, potentially that the voices that butchered were the same voices that made the family leave. Oh, no, I don't think at all. I think it's all complete bullshit. Oh. But <laughs> you ruined that tangle. You're, you're, you're talking to Scully here. No, I don't think that. But I also think that that is, well, we're, we're, we're jumping ahead because we're jumping into the motivations for the Lutzes. Um, I think it's mighty convenient that he throws that out there and then the family that moves in says that there is something demonic in the house. I have so many questions for next week's episode and I just cannot wait until hold on to them. Hold on. I always tell the kiddos to cross their fingers so they don't forget. So there was this, this 1986 interview that he gave to Newsday and okay, this is bear with me on this because this is, this is kind of a long shot. So he said his sister, Dawn, the older sister, shot his father, Ronald Sr. Then his mother shot Don. And then the three youngest children, Allison, Mark, and John. Well, so then he said his, his mom finished by shooting herself. And he, he said that he flew into a rage and then fired another bullet at his mom. But I'm trying to think, okay, let's let's say mom shot herself once and it failed so then he shot the second shot she was shot in the back twice i'm trying to imagine the kind of acrobatics involved in shooting yourself in the back do you think she might have been like in the matrix i maybe she's part of like <laughs> cirque du soleil the blah 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 blah, blah, blah so specific blah, blah. <laughs> cirque du soleil. but like come like come on man come on it's a bit of a stretch if you will but i'm <laughs> So, so like, I, I, I feel like it's going to come to the shock of no one that Butch was convicted <laughs> of these murders. Uh, he was sentenced to six consecutive 25-year prison terms. Dang. 150 years. Die in he, jail. He'd be, well, he'd be eligible for parole after the first 25 years. He has been up for parole a number of times now. Shockingly, he's never been granted parole. Shocker. Shocker. So this seems fairly open and shut, right? Yes. But there are some things that are kind of strange. I like strange things. Tell me. I, I know you do. <laughs> On your dating profile, it would be one of your turn-ons. Oh, no. Kill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Should I not disclose that? Oh, my bad. She's not ashamed, anyone. She's not ashamed. Listen, I don't feel like you should kink shame anybody. So, Gabby. Is that a pun? Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, okay, so so Butch did himself no favors. His his story evolved, it changed, it changed a lot. There were some things that were kind of strange though. He he would later state his insanity defense was done against his wishes. He said his attorney was the one that really pushed for that because he convinced Butch that there would be money in it, like money for a book deal, money for movies. But he never felt good about it because he is fairly convinced he is not insane. So author Christopher Barry D. That might be runner-up for best name. Barry D. He interviewed Butch in 1994 for his book, Talking with Serial Killers. Sounds like a book you would read. Well, I did. <laughs> hey! hey. <laughs> uh, although I will say, I love this. I love this little detail. So... Christopher Barry D. apparently arrived late. And Butch greeted him by saying, I've been fucking waiting for two hours for you. Who do you think I am? I got better things to do. In jail? Does he? Really? Does he? But I mean, I will say he's staying on brand. Sure. Yeah. Mm. Butch has stayed really, really consistent at least the last like two decades or so. Maybe, maybe a little more at this point. That his sister Dawn did the brunt of the killings. That is where his story has finally landed. Dawn wanted to run away with her boyfriend. Dawn had a drug problem as well. Dawn had an LSD problem. Oh, the 70s. But Dawn knew that their father wouldn't allow it. And so Dawn killed her father, killed her mother, killed her younger siblings. And that Butch only shot Dawn after he found out what she did, but also she attacked him, and so he was he had to. There are some things, I don't want to say that support this theory, but there's some things that do suggest there maybe was more than one shooter. And there were traces of, of what I'll say is backfire that were found on Dawn's nightdress, and that could suggest she had discharged a weapon. But... Also, from the kind of rifle it was, it could also just happen from getting shot. So it it probably had nothing to do with her actually discharging a weapon. But the night it happened, so 3.02 a.m., a 15-year-old neighbor, he lived like two doors down, he woke up because he heard the DeFeo's dog, Shaggy, barking. Barking like crazy, 3.02 a.m. Ruff, it wasn't me, ruff, ruff. It is what he was saying, exactly. It wasn't me. Ruff, 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 ruff. It wasn't me. Ruff, 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 ruff. Oh God, you should be the that. name That's of awful. this episode is Rough Rough. It wasn't me. Rough Rough. Rough Rough. It wasn't me. Rough Rough. <laughs> but uh, there was also so there was a barmaid who had gotten off work. It was about three thirty a.m. She passed the home, and again she noticed like all the lights were on, but nobody, not a single soul, reported hearing gunshots. Well, that is interesting. Well, that's interesting because there were eight shots. How does no one hear that? That's what I'd like to know. One of the possible explanations has been that the structure of the home, it's a three-story home, and it was big. It's possible that the sound was muffled by the way the house was structured. Sure, neighbors don't hear. but. Every person but Dawn was on the second floor. How do you not hear those gunshots going off? That doesn't make any sense. 
gunshots are loud. Rifle shots are loud. I I really struggle with how of this family, not a single one of them woke up. And and there had been speculation initially that maybe Butch drugged their food, but that was not proven. It was, in fact, it, it looks like they did tests and and that was proven to be false. That is weird. I don't it's know how weird. that would happen. I go back and forth with this because on the one hand, I think it's weird, but you do have, like his mom was turning towards a killer. So his mom woke up, right? Right. So he shoots his dad, boom, boom. Mom starts to wake up because of boom, boom, and he shoots mom. He shoots the two boys one after another, just boom, boom. So what if you have like a heavy sleeper? Well, because I, I, I think about my brother. My brother is a heavy sleeper. Right. In the house I used to live in when I was a kid, my parents, are they're big on burglar alarms. The burglar alarm had gone off. There is a, a speaker for it that was right outside his bedroom. I woke up. My mom woke up. My dad woke up. We're disoriented. We're like, what's going on? My brother slept through the whole damn thing. He was a heavy ass sleeper. He slept through his alarm once when it was going off downstairs. My bedroom was upstairs. It eventually woke me up. I came downstairs, turned it off, and then I dropped the cat on him because I was like, if I'm (laughs) awake, you're going to be awake, you asshole. Also, maybe a cat is a more effective alarm clock. Who knows? That's how I used to wake him up. I would just drop the cat on him. I was a great sister. Uh, Once you don't still do nice things for him, like drop the cat on him from time to time? From time to time, I still do. I go to his house in Portland and just walk in and drop a cat on him. His wife loves it. It's her favorite thing ever. Hashtag kinks. Hashtag kinks. So, <laughs> thank God neither of them listened to this. Uh, so, I, I could see, like, mom and dad are killed. Mom was waking up. It happened quickly. Yeah. Brothers are killed so fast. If they were heavy sleepers, maybe they wouldn't wake up. Sure. Sister Allison is killed, and then you go into Don's room. Don also was starting to wake up, and you do it. I could see how it would happen fast. And if it happened fast, and you were you had a family of fairly heavy sleepers, maybe you don't wake up. Now, there's a filmmaker named Ryan Katzenbach, another good name. He is is very much convinced there had to be a second shooter. Uh, he's made three documentary films on the subject. He very much believes that Don was the second shooter. In the 2000s, he hired an underwater archaeologist who went into that canal where they found the rifle. He found the handle of a gun. If there was a second shooter, there would have been a second gun. He believes it was Butch DeFeo's missing gun the one that he had mentioned his father had taken from him. Uh, The gun wasn't found until 2012. So good luck on getting forensic evidence from that. Anything that would have been on it was long gone. There's really no way to tell if it was connected. It was not in good shape. Police confiscated it. They said they don't think it's connected. Uh, It looked more like the handle of a handgun or a flare gun. And let's face it, I'm sorry, Long Island. Again, New Yorker here. Love you. But I can't imagine that's the only gun that's been thrown into that canal. Let's just put it that way. So that is, that is the story of the DeFeo murders. Uh, there is a new film in the works that is going to focus on the DeFeo case. So I, I do suspect that we're going to be hearing a lot more about it. It'll probably be in the news again. Maybe we'll get a new interview with Butch. Who knows? I did try writing him. You're right. I tried to write him. Well, I, I feel like if, if we're going to be talking you, about... Man. 
if listen, if we're going to talk about somebody who's still alive, I feel like I'm only doing my due diligence if I reach out and say, hey, uh, we're doing this podcast. We're going to be talking about you. Which is also why we need to do a future episode on BTK, your new friend. He's an interesting pen pal. <laughs> no, yeah, I just have that's the one letter from another story for another time. One letter from him. That's it. But I, I wouldn't be offended to have a little bit of a shift back to this case, like to put some public attention on it. If for no other reason, then I, I would sort of like to maybe once and for all put it to bed. Yeah. And if we use some of our more contemporary science. Maybe we finally can once and for all put a lot of this to bed, uh, because I I think that the lore of this case, partially because of the Lutzes and because of Butch, has reached a, a certain level. And and that honestly, if if I have to give my honest opinion of what happened, I, I think you have a very troubled young man who one night took a shotgun and killed his family. I mean, it wouldn't honestly surprised me because you talked about the multiple times he threatened his dad previously. Yeah. yeah. Like there does, it doesn't give any context of any like previous argument that he may have had with his dad the night before. Like maybe they all got into a, a huge wild fight that no one thought anything about because they were all very aggressive people in general, but yeah. maybe it just struck a chord with him this one time and it was the last straw and he just lost it. Like, and then thought he had his story together. Didn't think to check on a, you know, alibi for his mafia friend and just had a whole story that he just put together in his head. Yeah. Well, and I do wonder a little bit if he's one of those people who kind of believes his own lies. Well, the you more say, times you tell him. Well, exactly. And, and, and he was diagnosed with some sort of personality disorder, but not to the point where he wouldn't have known what he was doing. Sure. He was still lucid. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that is that is the DeFeos. And it's all a really sad story. It, it's it's very sad. You know, it, it, looking through some of the pictures from the case, there's there's a lot of photos. We'll probably post some of them to our Instagram, but there's there's photos of the bodies being taken from the home. And and you know, a lot of the victims were children. His family was children and his parents. That's that's sad. It it's also it's a it's a remarkably similar case, and I would like to cover this case at some point. Uh, the Jeremy Bamber case, which is a real similar one out of the UK. However, there's maybe a lot more doubt as to whether or not he was involved. Hmm. So that's a little tease for a possible future episode. I haven't heard about that one. A lot of Americans haven't. In the UK, it is one of their most notorious cases. And it's it's fascinating, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll be going more into the Lutzes and the haunting aspect of Amityville next week. That's where that's where the ghost story portion of this will really unfold, and also I, why this is a two part episode. There is there's a lot of content. Yes, I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait to be such a good molder to your scully. Because you know I'm gonna scully my ass off, and I'm gonna molder it too. I'm gonna be like, but. Aliens. No, I'm gonna really. I'm gonna make a mental note to fill my whiskey glass up before. <laughs> and every time you mold it really hard, I'm gonna take a sip. I'm gonna take a sip of my whiskey. I think that's a good game for anyone listening. 
Oh, uh, yeah, it does, you know, and, and, and send me your favorite whiskeys. I'm actually kind of curious what our listeners might be drinking. Good stuff for you to, you know, think about during this quarantine. Oh, God, yeah, seriously. Ooh, hope you guys are all doing okay out there. But, uh, you know, speaking of quarantine, quarantine, this is a good time to talk about our Creepy Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Anywho, what you watching? <laughs> you know? I started today my 30 days of quarantine. I suspect none of the listeners know this. I Every year, I do something called 100 Days of Horror. And it is a hundred horror films I've never seen in the hundred days leading up to Halloween. That is so hard for you to find horror movies you've never seen. It's not as hard as you think. There's That's like, what she said. <laughs> do you know every year that there is somewhere between 800 to 1,000 new horror films released? I did not know that. I didn't say they were good horror films, but ah, horror films are released. Details. Yeah. And there's a lot of foreign ones too. I will say this is my year. This is going to be year, I don't know, six or seven at this point. I think seven. We are starting to get some of the deep cuts, but inspired by my 100 Days of Horror, I have started doing 30 Days of Quarantine. So from April 1st to April 30th, I am watching 30 horror films in the zombie apocalypse outbreak disease genre. I could have seen them before uh, as opposed to 100 Days of Horror where I I can't see them. But I I watched this movie called Threads. It's a British film from 1984. It's available to stream on Shudder. Man, it's a rough watch. It's post-apocalyptic. It's like if a nuclear war had happened back in the 80s. And they were trying to go for authenticity. Oh, no. It is wow. It is hard to watch. It really is. It is. It is fantastically done. But... I I saw it. I've seen it before, but I saw it decades ago. I remembered very little from it. And I was watching it thinking, oh, this will be kind of a fun, silly watch. No, it's not. It's hard to watch. It's very good, but it is a rough, rough watch. I also watched recently Midsummer. Oh, you love that movie. It is one of my... It was my top movie for 2019 at City of Geek. Shout out, cityofgeek.com. Boom. Plug plug they they are lovely they plug us too i it's one of my other podcasts i also write for their website midsummer is available for streaming on amazon prime this was the fourth time i've seen it i saw it three times in theaters i also have it on blu-ray because i love it that much it is a movie that brings me utter utter joy i understand maybe not everybody's going to feel that way but it's it's is really it's a cathartic listen if you've ever if you're if you've ever been in a bad relationship and you watch this movie it is such a release and it, it just makes me smile at the end. I love it. So I have I to watch say, it still. I haven't seen it yet. Girl, you got to watch it. It's so I good. Know. It's so good. So what I've been doing since Kim has been so wonderful at recommending such great movies is I actually everything. am taking her advice and watching the things that she's telling me to watch. So if you listen to our previous episode, Kim actually recommended to watch The Awakening. And I, which your boyfriend did not last through, if I recall correctly. No, he wouldn't. He refused to watch it. I, I purposely was trying to watch it during the day because oh, he prefers to not watch scary things at night because he gets nightmares. Sweet so boy. I was like, okay, one p.m. It's not even raining today. There is sun. 
we're going to watch it. Let Picks up his laptop. Goes into the bedroom and goes, nope, bye. Oh, honey. <laughs> totally fine. It's okay. I can watch a horror movie by myself. I'll live, right? So I watched it, and I think my favorite part of the entire movie was the very first scene where oh, it yeah. basically shows a classic seance from the early 1900s. Spiritualism, yeah, um, post-World War One, And it really is exactly what we talked about in the episode about the Fox sisters yes. and how people were doing faux seances and faking it, but you had people that were so desperate to get closure on their loved one's deaths or communicate with someone that they believed everything. And the main character just scullies it hardcore yep. her and i so, her and i have a lot in common it literally i was like kim that's kim kim's it, it in is. this movie it guys. Is. i am in this movie so, <laughs> that's I why making, i like it so much i keep making jokes that kim is in certain movies because it's people that are like her as a character and i, I keep convincing other people that she actually is well, in the movie. <laughs> people in our ghost hunting group who think we're serious and that's kind of hysterical to me but. oh it's great um she's not actually in this movie but her humanity is channeled through the main character of the awakening so anyway and i also noticed that bran from game of thrones is in That's it right. as like wee little boy so having said that if you'd like to watch any of the things that we suggested or that we talk about let us know how you like them too um, yeah. we love a per- good perspective we so, do Thank you for all this research, Kim. I'm so excited for next episode to talk about uh, the hauntings. Ghost bitches. Yes. Hashtag ghost bitches. Because next yes. week is going to be, I keep saying next week. It's because next, next week for us, we're recording it. Yes. But it's it's really two like, weeks. A, yeah, it's two weeks you're going to be getting this. But it's going to be like hashtag ghost bitches. I think that should just be our general hashtag. We are uh, the ghost bitches. Uh, yeah. Alternative name to the podcast, Gabby. We're changing it. Sorry, I didn't tell you. Okay, fine. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you want to see photos of what we talk about, go to our Instagram. It is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. If you would like to message us, you can message us there. We also are looking for more ghost stories. So if you have a ghost story of any kind of experience that you've had, a loved one's had, you can message us. You can send it to our email, which is Gabby, G-A-D-I, at ghoulishtendencies.com. We also have a Facebook page called Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We also have Patreon. If you like what you listen to and you want to give us some financial love so that we can get by, I know it's a hard time. I get it. Whatever you can donate, we appreciate. And you get some fun stuff out of it too. We're sending out some postcards this week. Yes. Our Patreon name is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. So just look us up on there. We also have a website ghoulishtendencies.com. All of our episodes are on there. All of our show notes are on there. And the tweets. Yeah, literally all of our social media is on there too. So our Twitter is ghoulishpodcast and you can message us on there. So if there's anything that you want to tell us, give us some feedback, I don't know, rate and review. Apple Podcasts has that. So please head over to Apple Podcasts if you have not already given us a rating and a review. We so appreciate them. Make sure you subscribe. That way, you hear our new episodes. And uh, having said that, thanks for listening. Stay spooky.